Welcome back. Reading again from this Viking book before bed. Uh, this is chapter 10. It's about magic and shamanism. A dire famine had seized Greenland. The Viking settlers had been able to rely on their stores to provide them with a spare bleak diet over the winter, but it was clear that if the famine swallowed the coming year as it had the previous one, they would all starve to death. Thorkell, the leading farmer in his settlement, sent for Thorbjorg, the island's premier seeress. Thorbjorg usually spent the winter traveling from farm to farm, receiving room and board in exchange for foretelling what the coming year held. This winter, Thorkell and his neighbors were especially anxious to hear what she had to say. When Thorbjorg arrived with the man who had been sent to escort her, she was dressed in a dark blue cloak that glistened with countless precious gemstones that had been sewn into it. A glass bead necklace hung around her neck. Her head was partially covered by a hood made of black lambskin and lined with white catskin. In her hands, she held a scarf with a knob on top that was covered by brass and more gemstones. A large leather pouch sat on her wooden belt. Really, wooden belt. In this pouch were all kinds of mystifying charms. Her feet were covered by hairy calfskin shoes. Oh, yeah. Was calfskin. Okay, the other thing was catskin. This is calfskin with metal knobs at the toe. Her hands were covered by white, furry, cat-skin gloves. The people received her with meticulously respectful greetings, which she responded to based on her opinion of the person. Thorkell took her by the hand and led her into the high seat that had been prepared for her, upon which had been placed a cushiony, newly stuffed, a cushion newly stuffed with fresh hen feathers. This would be the platform from which she would give her prophecies. She, <clears throat> she seemed pleased by it, but said little. Besides, before she would tell the people about their future, her stomach had to be filled, and not just with any food. The tables were prepared for dinner, and all sat down to eat. Thorbjorg was given a porridge made, of, made with goat's milk, and for her main course, a heart from every species of livestock kept at Thorkell's farm. They even gave her special silverware, a brass spoon with an ivory-handled knife with the point broken off. After dinner, Thorkell approached Thorbjorg and asked her when she might be ready to give the people what they wanted. She replied that she would first have to spend the night at the farm, so she was provided with one of the finest beds they had and all went to sleep. The following evening, she was provided with all the tools she requested to aid her in her sorcery. Then she told the people to find women who knew the proper chance, Barthlerker, to accompany her work. Barthlerker. Interesting word. But this was the late 10th century. Many of the people had already converted to Christianity, and old customs like the Vartlerker 
were falling into disuse. As a result, no one could be found who knew the incantations. At last, Gudrid, a young woman, spoke up. I am not skilled at sorcery, nor can I be counted among the wise women. But my foster mother in Iceland taught me the songs when I was a child, and I think I still remember them. Thorbjorg smiled at her and said, Then you know more than I expected. But Gudrid added that she was a Christian woman and therefore wasn't comfortable with participating in the rituals of her forebears who hadn't revered Christ. Thorbjorg pointed out to her that people were in great need and performing the chants would be a great service to them. She then insinuated that she... she she then insinuated, in a not-so-subtle manner, that Thorkell could force Gudrid to sing. Thorkell took the hint and persuaded the girl until she agreed to sing. Then Thorbjorg got up onto the high seat, and the women, the women made a circle around her. Gudrid began to recite the chants. Afterward, everyone would say that the sounds had flowed from her so beautifully that they had... Oops. Afterwards, everyone would say that the sounds had flowed from her so beautifully that they had never heard anyone do a better job. When Gudrid had finished, Thorbjorg thanked her and said that the incantation had proven successful. A great number of spirits, many of whom had earlier hardened their hearts against the people, had come to assist the ritual. And now she said, with their help, she could see the year ahead. When this winter ends, so too will this famine. When spring arrives, the land will heal, and you shall lack nothing. Then she, then she turned to Gudrid and said, As for you, Gudrid, I will reward you for your work by telling you what fate has in store for you, for it is very pleasant indeed. You will marry the most honorable man in the land of Greenland, but it will not last long. That is for the better, however, because your path leads overseas to Iceland. There you will become the mother of a line of men and women so great it will be as if a bright ray of sunlight went out of its way to shine on your family. Health to you, and fare you well. Then each person who was present went before Thorbjorg in turn and asked what the year held for them. Few of her, answer, few of her answers didn't come to pass. Thorbjorg was called away to another farm and bade goodbye to Thorkell and his people. And when spring came, the famine abated, and the people had full bellies and peaceful minds. The tale of Thor Thorbjorg's divination in the saga of Eric the Red is one of the most detailed and telling depictions of Viking magic in Old Norse literature. Lots of the particulars that appeared again and again in other more limited accounts of the practice of magic in the Viking Age are contained in this one passage. In a Norse context, magic can be probably can probably be most appropriately defined as the knowledge of how to manipulate spiritual forces and the skilled application of that knowledge in practice. Magic was distinguished from the rest of the religion by the fact that the practitioner of magic 
didn't just worship spiritual forces and humbly ask for favors. He or she sought to actively control some of them in order to accomplish particular outcomes. It should go without saying that there is no record, recorded instance of anyone attempting to control the deities themselves through magic. That would have been futile, and might have brought dire consequences for any mere human who attempted something so insulting to the very powers who held the cosmos together. But spiritual entities of a lesser stature, such as the parts of the self discussed in chapter 7, were fair game. The practitioner would also work with spirits as powerful as or more powerful than the practitioner himself or herself with whom the sorcerer or sorceress had a working relationship. Knowledge was central to the magician's craft. The most general Old Norse word for magic, fjolkingi, fjolkingi meant great knowledge. It was derived from the verb kuna, which meant to know, but didn't refer to just any kind of knowledge. <clears throat> it signified an understanding of the inner workings of people, things, and the world as a whole, as well as a mastery of ancient lore and traditions. Such insight and erudition was the necessary basis of the successful practice of magic. Any random person couldn't just say abracadabra and expect something magical to happen in any more any more than a modern person could just say car and magically end up with a new car. Building a car is, is an impressive feat that requires highly specialized knowledge and skill, and so for the Norse was the manipulation of spiritual entities. In the Viking Age way of looking at things, magic wasn't irrational, nor did it violate what we would call the laws of nature. The potential efficacy of magic was perfectly rational relative to the Vikings' fundamental assumptions about reality, and it worked with the, with the laws of nature, which, as we've seen, essentially came down to fate rather than against them. <clears throat> this section is called... Seed, S-E-I-D. <clears throat> the Old Norse sources use the word seed, or seether, in what appear to be two different ways, as one type of magic among others, and as a synonym for magic in its totality. This is yet another instance of the fluidity and lack of systematization systematization in Norse religion, a theme we've already noted and discussed several times. While some modern writers have attempted to isolate seed as a particular kind of magic cleanly distinct from other kinds, the very vagueness with which the sources delineate seed comes seems to argue against this interpretation. Furthermore, there aren't any magical practices that aren't referred to as seed at some point in Old Norse literature. So the idea that there were other forms of Norse magic that were never thought to be part of seed rests on rather shaky ground. The safest and most widely applicable interpretation, therefore, is that seed was seen as being effectively synonymous with magic as a whole. 
The common Old Norse noun, seether, meant string, cord, snare, halter. For a long time, scholars were reluctant to accept that seether, the name of the magical tradition, came from the common noun, seether. That's the same thing. Because it isn't clear at first glance what the relationship between weaving and ecstatic sorcery would be. But closer and more recent research has made sense of this conundrum, and along the way has revealed much about what seed consisted of in practice. Consider Thorbjörg's jewel-studded staff, for example. The staff seems to have been a near-universal accessory of seed practitioners, Valur, in Old Norse, Valur, singular, Volva, it was a symbolic distaff, a tool used in the process of spinning fiber. With his or her his or her ritual distaff in hand, die staff. I'm just going to call it a distaff. With his or her ritual distaff in hand, sorcerer or sorceresses would send out spiritual spiritual parts of himself or herself or other spirits to do his or her bidding. They would be tethered to the distaff by an imagined string so that they could be readily called back when they had achieved their purpose. Another part of the connection between magic and string, cord, snare, halter was surely the prevalence of imagery of binding and loosening bonds in instances of magic in Old Norse literature. To control someone by magical means was to metaphorically bind them, and the evidence suggests that this was more than just a metaphor for the Norse. The tethers that tied the traveling spears to their master's staffs could also ensnare victims or break snares. For example, one of the most dreaded circumstances in the Viking Age was to find oneself paralyzed in battle by the so-called war fetters, herfjotr, of the enemy magician, as happened to the protagonist in the saga of Horde and the people of Holm. At a crucial moment in battle, a vulva was placed. At a, at a, at a crucial moment in battle, a vulva placed the war fetters around Horde. Such was the warrior's strength that he was able to break free and continue to fight. The war fetters came upon him again, and after great exertion. He again escaped and took up his weapons against his enemies. But then he was ensnared a third time and found himself helpless against the ring of enemies closing in on him. Furthermore, recall that weaving imagery was sometimes used to depict the norms, the norns, with an N, crafting of fate, chapter 5. The Valur, too, are occasionally called norns in Old Norse texts. Given the striking convergence of images, it seems reasonable to assume that the spinning activities involved in Seed also had something to do with threading additions to the web of fate. It's highly unlikely, however, that human sorcerers and sorceresses were thought to be capable of undoing what the Norns proper had already woven. They probably only contributed a few extra patterns around the web's edges. 
Seed rituals were often performed at the top of a raised platform called Seidskjallr, as Thorbjorg did in the Saga of Eric the Red. The Varflorkur, guardian spirit enticement, chants that Gudrid sang were another common feature and summoned spirits to aid the vulva in his or her work. The songs were said to be exceptionally pleasing to the ear, and thus Allure was thought to be naturally attracted to the spirits. Oh, and this Allure was thought to be naturally, was thought to naturally attract the spirits. Jeez, it's late. Due to this pleasantness, pleasantness, the songs could also be used to draw soon-to-be victims of injurious magic to the situation where they would be harmed. How did the Valor enter the trance states in which they performed their work? The sources don't tell us directly, but they do offer some clues. For one thing, there's no evidence for a widespread use of ethigens, mind-altering plants used in religious context, literally substance that bring one into the presence of the divine among the Norse. It probably occurred here and there, but it certainly doesn't seem to have been anything like an extensive practice. The sole and obvious exception to this is alcohol, but that was used in larger, more regular, more communal rituals like the ones we saw in chapter 9, and no source records, no source records a vulva imbibing a significant amount of alcohol before beginning his or her rituals. Instead, it's probable that the Volor got themselves into the proper frame of mind via the sweet music of the Varthloker, as well as deep breathing exercises. The sources sometimes refer to Volor yawning at the start of a ritual, which could point to such a practice and would accord with the Norse identification of breath and spirit. But once again, we don't really know for sure. Words, whether spoken, sung, or written, were another central feature of the practice of magic in the Viking Age. For the Norse, words weren't merely symbols that referred to something else in the real world after the fact. They weren't spoken idly. Instead, a word was thought to bring into being that which it symbolized. By being spoken or sung aloud, a written or written on a physical surface, words had a physical presence of their own and were part of the fabric of physical reality. They transformed an abstract intention or idea into something concrete. Words and the intentions and ideas behind them had the power to change physical reality, just like any other physical phenomenon. Therefore, when someone pronounced a blessing or a curse, for example, that a, that blessing or curse was believed to actually take place simply because it had been articulated. The Volor harnessed this incredible power in several ways. One was writing the text of the spell in runes, the Norse alphabet. After the words were recorded, the letters were typically reddened with sacrificial blood, clout, to render them more potent. Another was singing the spells aloud, a practice which was called Galdur, 
The word Galdr primarily meant sung or chanted spell, but it carried a secondary connotation of animal noises, especially those of roosters and other birds with especially piercing calls. Really? An insane person would said to be Galen, roughly the object of Galdr. Nevertheless, Galdr was said to be pleasing to the ear, and it may have been intentioned in a special meter. Oh, intoned, not intentioned. And it may have been intoned in a special meter, preserved in a few pieces of Edic poetry called Galdralag. Another technique used by sorcerers and sorceresses was utiseta, literally sitting out. While not a ritual in itself, in and of itself, it performed a framework. It formed a framework that could give rituals context that would make them particularly effective. Utiseta involved sitting outside at night in places of great spiritual power, such as burial mounds beneath the dangling bodies of the hanged, or beside running water. Unsurprisingly, it seems to have been used especially often in rituals that involved communication with the dead. And that's where I'm going to leave it tonight, because I can barely keep my eyes open. The next little portion is about the uses of seed. I'll read that next time.